The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on. You are tuned in to the 3CR Gardening Show for another beautiful Sunday morning. Welcome to you all wherever you are. I'm Chloe Foster and with me in the studio is two walking encyclopedias. <laughs> Stephen Ryan of Dixonia Rare Plants and a number of other things and Greg Boulderston, fungi enthusiast and bulb expert. Welcome, Macedon boys. Good morning, morning yes. Chloe. Yes, it's from our neck of the woods this morning. Yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. It was uh, lovely weather on the way down. I, I th- you, I'm assuming you got the same weather I did, which is uh, yeah, misty rain. and, yeah. and uh, But it wasn't quite as windy this morning as it no. was yesterday. Oh, God, yes. Yesterday was awful. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm in the midst of potting bare-rooted trees. And it is (laughs) muddy, wet, soggy. And every time the phone rings, I've got to rush in and wash my hands before I can (laughs) answer the phone. I hate bare-rooted tree season. Well, um, heritage fruit trees out near Beaufort, Ararat, I follow them on Instagram and they've got a really good Instagram. They've been Mm. posting uh, videos of what they're digging up, basically, yeah. for all, the, all their customer orders at the moment. And it's fascinating to watch, but it is a muddy process. Oh, goodness me. I'm glad I don't actually work in the paddocks where they're lifting the trees, I have to say. It's well, bad enough potting. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been digging up the Japanese maples at Forest Glade, which are literally a weed. Mm. And we thought a few years ago, well, I'll start digging them up. Mm. We've got to dig them up anyway. Mm. And I'll, I clip all the roots and the tops yeah pop them in six and eight inch pots and we sell them at the front gate sort yep. of as a good idea souvenir for yeah, the from nice. the garden um and i think i've i the last the last day uh last week i was uh i think i dug up like 140 japanese maples <laughs> yeah, and that takes a little while uh, it to does pot. take a little while to pot <laughs> yeah. i haven't got that far yet they're, yeah. they're just sort of bundled up bare rooted yeah. sort of uh with some some mulch on the roots but yeah that that was a bit of a muddy process oh, to yeah. uh getting those things and out I, of the ground. And I don't know what it is about uh, the growers up in the Dandenongs. My hands are still ingrained. The mm. soil they grow their stuff in up there 
it just gets into your hands and you can't get it out. It's um, thick yeah, red soil. Yeah, isn't it, it is, and 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 of course they wash most of the soil off, but there's always attendant mud with the plant mm. when it it's arrives. It's like eating twisties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yes, it's, it's a very similar thing actually. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so yes, yeah, so, uh, it takes me weeks after I finish the bare rooted trees for the for the dirt to slowly work out of my hands. Yeah. I need to wash dishes for a few days afterwards. Mm. I think you know that. And that wash could, your hair too. Yeah, yeah, that helps. That helps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all those things. But yeah, that muddy stuff that they they get around there. Roots, I don't know, but anyhow, and look, look, we're going to have lots of interesting trees. That's the main thing. Given how much work put is put into bare rooting trees yeah. and digging them up out of the ground and cleaning them, sending them all off, they're a very um, reasonably well, it's probably not reasonable, reasonably priced plant. Yeah, mm. yeah, look, they're not they're an the... expensive thing to buy. Yeah. Um, I always pot mine up as soon as they hit the decks at the nursery because I don't like having those sawdust pits with, with roots in and things. Because if somebody pulls a tree out, they often expose the yeah. roots of the one next to it, and yeah. you can have all sorts of problems. So I pot them up straight away. But if somebody comes in over the next four to six to eight weeks, uh, uh, I'll bare root them again and then I give them a discount on the pot and potting mix because I yeah. get that back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they can still buy their bare-rooted tree, but come spring, if I haven't sold them, I haven't got that mad rush to try and deal with them, mm. and I'm not disturbing them again after the root system started. And, to and they can suffer a lot too if they're not potted up when they should be, or as yeah. you say, if they've pulled out of the sawdust oh, and not put back in yeah. properly, and the roots are dry yeah. out or exposed to yeah. sunlight. Well, you don't know what's been done to them before you get them. Yeah. When they're you know lifted in the paddock, are they kept nice and damp? Um, are they properly dampened down before they're delivered? Because most of the bare-rooted tree growers, that it would seem these days, they bundle the trees up and stick them in the back of a truck and they obviously water them when they first go in there. But how long did they sit in the truck? Mm. Yeah. Have they been doing three-days tour around Victoria delivering? And um, it only takes five minutes on a windy, warmish, sunny, even yeah. not warm, even just a windy, sunny day. Yeah. Those bare roots in the open air dry out yeah. real yeah. fast. So, yeah. yeah, so I like to deal with them as quickly as I can um, so that there's as little possibility of damage mm. and things as possible. Mm. Um and, yeah, so now I'm inundated with um, dogwoods and maples and, oh, oh goodness knows. they're gorgeous. Yeah. I just love them. I've got them. so many dogwoods this year. I had how a bit many, of a rush of blood. How many different species or varieties have you got? Uh, the, well, I've got the National Collection and there's over 40 in the National oh Collection in my nursery of different <laughs> cornices. Uh, wow. That's including hybrids and forms and things, not just wild species. Uh, but, yes, I've got over 40 um, and it keeps growing. I got another one this year to add to the collection, <laughs> which I used to have years ago and lost, and uh, somebody's propagated it up again, so yeah. I've been able to reintroduce it into the collection. Is that Cornus Welchii? Yes. Oh, excellent. I've got a big batch of them. I want one of those. Oh, yeah, describe yeah, it to me. It. I don't know it. Well, it's a form of Cornus floridus, so the normal um, North American flowering Is dogwood. Is that a evergreen one? No, no, That's it's one of the deciduous ones. And Welshii is a variegated leaf one, so it's not everybody's taste. Uh, but it has a silver edge around the leaf, and as the summer comes on, the silver edge gets a lot of pink staining in it. So it's got this sort of tricolour effect to the leaves. Oh. And then in the autumn when the leaves turn, the whitish edge is by that stage gone bright pink, and the centre of the leaf goes burgundy. Oh. And it's 
because it's highly variegated, it's also comparatively slow growing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it would make a good it's tub quite specimen. a compact, yeah, compact tub, little bushy yeah, yeah. one. Okay. Uh, it'd make a great tub specimen. I have to say, variegated dogwoods tend to take away from the value of their flowers mm. by their foliage being so overt. But nonetheless, it gets quite the, nice. This one's flowers. got pretty impressive foliage. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, it is. It's very impressive dogwood. And I had one for years in the garden at the nursery that was doing really well. And then I put in an automatic sprinkler system, and the area where the dogwood was was under the sprinklers, and it got too wet. And oh, it just okay. basically well, drowned it. The out. last one I bought off you, I uh, planted at my sister's place over in Trentham, mm-hmm. and her ex-husband cut it down with a chainsaw because it was too close to the driveway. He cut it off at what? ground level. Don't <laughs> so, I'm you glad he's ex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's what, well, maybe one of the reasons, but yeah. Would being variegated would it do all right <clears throat> in a shadier spot? It actually needs a little bit of shelter in warmer climates because it will burn. Yeah. Um, so yes, it, it would be good in a in a tub in a fernery uh, or shade housey sort of situation. Uh, it would bring a bit of light and colour into a, a spot underneath a big tree somewhere. And look, the one I had in the garden uh, at the nursery before it did die. Um, had managed over probably 15 years to only get to about two and a half, three metres. Oh, that's a nice size. So quite a nice compact little mm. dogwood and reasonably stable too. It doesn't tend to revert like some variegated things mm. do. So it seems to be fairly stable as a, a variegate. Yeah. So, yeah, so I got a whole pile of those. I've got a whole pile of Cornus cooses, the uh, Asian flowering dogwoods and there's a whole pile of new ones of those that have come onto the market, different shades of pink variegated leaves uh, I saw one in France oh, God, why has it never been imported into Australia? A hybrid between Cornus Cusa and Cornus Nuttali which they've called Venus and it has flowers nearly the size of a magnolia Wow <coughs> It is just outrageous mm. but it's not in the country, mm. damn it because uh, it would be a really interesting addition. It's almost too flouncy. Its mm. flowers are so big. It's what sort colour of, are they? They're white, but they stain pink as the flowers age. So it's an Eddie's White Wonder that doesn't get the botrytis and the that, uh, that rust less. on the leaves. It still can get oh, that, okay, right. that fungal disease, but less. Less, yeah. Because it's got kusa in it. Is it mm. the flowers that get the fungal no, disease? No, it's the usually the foliage that oh. attacks a little bit, unfortunately, okay. yeah. Yes, the North American ones are prone to this thing, this sort of black spotty fungus thing that's called uh, cornus anthracnose. Okay. And it can weaken the plants. It certainly makes them look scruffy. Um, uh, it's known to kill weak plants in time. And some years it's really bad. Some years it's not so bad. Mm. It seems to be a weather-related thing. Um, but it's virtually, well, you can control it, but you can't have a life. Mm. If you've got a healthy tree, though, they as you say, it just mm. varies from year to year. Yeah. Like I've got a weeping Florida at home. Yeah. And some years there's nothing on it at all. Yeah. And even the worst years, it seems a bit quite resilient Oh, to it. they bounce back uh, usually. And, yeah. yeah. So but it's, it's a bit unfortunate because they do look scruffy when they've had a bad yeah, year. Yep. Mm. Um, so I do try and convince people to plant the Chinese and Japanese dogwoods for preference because they don't get it. Um, so they're immune to the fungal disease. Right. And it's in Australia. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. I have this theory that it made its way in via somebody smuggling some plant material into the country because if they'd gone through quarantine, yeah. it should have been picked up because the anthracnose is reasonably obvious, so they should have picked it up. Um, I mean, I can't prove any such thing, but, you know, uh, there have been over the years many a nurseryman that has smuggled plant material Can in. you imagine? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so I would be really surprised if it didn't find its way in that way. Um, Although I have seen... Uh, when I was in the flower cut flower industry, mm-hmm. some of the quarantine people come out 
and uh, one woman asked if I took her into a greenhouse full of flowering Dutch hyacinths, mm. and she said, oh, these are the tulips, are they? <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah, it does make you wonder. So, uh, you yes, never know. Yes, some of them don't seem to have particularly good plant knowledge. No. You? But you'd hope the people who are working in the quarantine stations that are government-run ones at least would know what they're trying to look for, even if they don't know what the plant is. Mm. You know. But I had the same issue. I had a box of plants coming in from England years ago, and you know it was all properly permitted and all that sort of stuff, but it was meant to go direct to Tasmania because that's where the best quarantine house was at the time, down in Hobart, and your stuff tended to survive, so mm. I always sent my stuff through Hobart. But the box arrived in Melbourne, and at, at Tullamarine Airport, some officious person decided to open it. So once it had been opened, it had to be dealt with in Melbourne. And so I got this phone call from the darling Angela from uh, Quarantine, great name for somebody in Quarantine, uh, and she said, "We uh, this is a disgusting box of messy plants, um, should never have been sent out like this, blah, 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 blah. Um, we have to deal with it. And I said, well, what do we have to do? And she said, well, they all have to be recleaned uh, and then they'll have to be fumigated here in Victoria before they're sent on to Tasmania. So, <clears throat> so I went down to to Tullamarine, I spent two hours, I think, cleaning the roots again because uh, she found a slug that came out of the box. Now, everything is methyl bromided, and so the slug wouldn't have made it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyhow, to rewash all the plants in this big sink, uh, and she was charging me $36.50 per quarter hour to stand and watch me do it. Uh, and anyhow, I cleaned all the plants and kept my trap shut. Mm. Um, and she's looking at things and looking at labels and names on lists. And there were plants in there that I know didn't look like the genus they belonged in, but she had no idea. Mm. Absolutely no idea. Mm. I had an acanthus in amongst it that had leaves like it should have been a daisy. It oh, really looked like right. something out of the Compositae flower, uh, family. It didn't look like an acanthus at all. Went straight past it, didn't pay any attention whatsoever. Mm. And we got to the end of the whole thing. Everything was back, back into the box and there was this big sink of dirty water and I said, what do you do with that now? And she went, oh, I can't unplug it, can I? Mm. So well, then she well had to free. scoop it out and put it in a hazardous waste container thing uh, to be sent off. And, I mean, it was just madness. And after the, after the fumigation, I had to drive it down to Footscray, mm. have it fumigated, come back again the next day and pick it up and bring it back to her to be sent on. And she gave me ten pages of do's and don'ts which, of course, I didn't read. <laughs> I mean, there was just no, – it was, and it was all in almost legalese anyway. You couldn't understand oh, you most of it anyway. It. Uh, so anyhow, I bought the box back, and what had happened was that at the fumigating place they hadn't sealed the box, and one of the rules and regulations was that the box had to be sealed. So I got back and she gave me the rounds of the kitchen about this box being unopened, or opened, I should say, um, and I said, well, I didn't realise that it had to be sealed. It was their responsibility, I thought, at that end that they should have done all that. Well, oh, she, did she go through her hoops? <laughs> Uh, you could have taken everything out. And I thought, damn, wish I had. Um, <laughs> yeah, you could have. Uh, and, and I see her point. But nonetheless, I didn't, you know, I mean, I know that ignorance is, you know, uh, is no excuse in the law. Mm. But nonetheless, she gave me a really hard time about it. And anyhow, we sealed the box up. The box, I might add, had been in transit for about two weeks. So it's a wonder anything was still alive. Mm. Uh, so somehow or another, even though it was sent out airmail, uh, I beat it home. Um, and I was expecting it to already be in Tasmania when I got the phone call. Yeah. Um, so we sent them down. And funnily enough, I got quite a lot of them survive. Oh, miracle. I, I was really amazed at how much of it actually made it through. Yeah. But, uh, oh, God, it was one of the things that put me off doing it anymore. 
Yeah, it's a, and it's so it's just getting so much harder these days. Oh. Well, you can't even import, import anything unless it's already on the accepted list, and on the accepted list is mainly things that are already here. Mm. Mm. So unless it's a new cultivar of something, what's the point in bringing in something that's already in the country? Yeah. I want to bring in the things I didn't know about. Yeah, it's a, the paperwork that put me off, oh. like importing bulb seeds, because like you don't you're not going to intentionally bring something in that you know is weedy or. Yeah. And most of the bulbs I was interested in were things like crocuses and colchicums and very little weed potential in those sort of families, frittle areas, things like that. Yeah, if Um, only they were a bit weedier. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And, yeah, it's it's the same sort of paperwork. And then, yeah, you know, someone like Bunnings can import philodendron orchids from the Philippines and have them on the shelf in less than two weeks or, you know, a couple Mm. of days even. It's like, well... Yeah, what is going that's, on there? That's a bit odd. That's yeah. yeah. yeah there's two, the thing that you've got a heap of is, cash, you can just pump whatever you want through. Yeah, that's what that, that that's totally. sort of what it means. Is yeah, if you've well, got I the think it does because there are different rules for different people. Yeah, um, and different ideas about things. I mean, years ago, uh, there's a hypericum called Androsaceum, which is on the weed list, so it's one of the weedy hypericums, uh, and that's fair enough. But there's some cultivars of it uh, that have particularly pretty seed pods and there's one called peaches and cream that has these quite pretty deep peach pink um, seed pods and it's used a lot in floral art you'll Mm. often see it in floral shops and in floral arrangements and stuff anyhow I saw a bunch of flowers with it in um, actually down at Domain House at the the Botanic Gardens they were having an event on and somebody had put a flower arrangement in and there was bits of this Mm. hypericum through it so I took a couple of pieces out and took them home and propagated it because it's really easy to strike from cuttings. So I had some Hypericum androsaceum peaches and cream at the nursery and one of the guys from uh, the DPI or whatever it is these days uh, came in to talk to me about something else that had been an issue and he saw the Hypericums and he said, you can't grow those. And I said, well, somebody else is. Um, I mean, they're being sold to the florist trade. So it's out there everywhere. It's really easy to propagate. Why can't I grow it if some... Mm. Mm, flower grower up in the Dandenongs can row it out in a paddock and sell it, why can't I grow it? Oh, no, or, no, no, you can't have that. Or if there was an imported flower. Which I don't think the, it which was. It, you don't think it was? Yeah, because no. even if it was imported, though, if it's on the weed list, it still shouldn't be being, yeah, being it shouldn't imported, be imported. The cut flower industry. So, no, I'm quite convinced it was being grown somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And I think if I just put Hypericum peaches and cream on it instead of being specific mm. about the species, he probably wouldn't have taken it's any It's a good notice. lesson on not to be a pedant. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I like to keep the names correct. <laughs> Most quarantine people are probably just taught how to identify marijuana and nothing else. Yeah, like, well, it could be. So they yeah. pick that up, but they, yeah, they're not trained. No. There'd be so many different things that come through quarantine as well. It would be really hard to, oh, you yeah. know. So if the rules worked, yeah. then that's great, but mm. I don't think they do. Mm. And most of the people that have trouble with that, people trying to get something interesting in. And often it's conservation work too. It might not be our natives, but they're natives from a country where Where that habitat is under pressure. pressure. And if it's it's not those collectors around the world keeping them and growing them and keeping those gene pools alive and diverse all around the world, those, these species might die out too. So it's good conservation work, uh, plant collecting. Mm. even if it's not in the country of its native origin. Yeah, really good point. And that's probably one of the biggest yeah. parts that is affected by this because the stopping of pathogens coming into the country, mm. it, as I say, if, if a big chain store can have something on a shelf in a couple of weeks while it's in soil flowering in yeah. a pot, 
there's much more risk of mm. uh, bringing pathogens into the country. Well, I'm sure that's how that... Western flower thrip got into Australia with, mm. with imported cut flowers or pot yeah. plants, and now we've got an issue with it. You know, and you know, it just drives you a bit yeah. nuts. And mm. somebody like myself that just wants to bring in some rare plant from somewhere, uh, just to grow a few to sell them to specialist clients. I mean, we're, it's not a it's not a multinational company. I'm not making vast amounts of money. Uh, I think probably the thing that quarantine doesn't understand is if they made it as cheap, straightforward, and simple as possible for people to do the right thing, they would discourage smuggling. Mm. And it's the smuggling that you've got to be really mm. careful of because it'll be somebody shoving something down their bra or, or whatever, uh, sneaking it back from the old country. Mm. Uh, they're the ones that are likely to bring in some new pest or disease or even potentially some weed plant because they don't really understand yep. the difference. Uh, whereas if they encourage nursery people and proper collectors to, to do it all officially and properly but do it as cheaply and easily as possible, we wouldn't have mm. as much problem. Mm. Um, but my issue is that, you know, anything that's on the icon list I don't mm. want. It's all the things that aren't on the icon list <laughs> yeah. that I want and they're plants I don't even know about yet. Yeah. Mm. So it's the thing I meet, uh, like when I was in France a few weeks ago, we were, I visited a few plant collectors' gardens up in Brittany and Normandy and they had plants I'd never seen in my life. They had plants I'd never heard of in my life. Uh, they were amazing plants. I'll guarantee that none of them are on the icons list. None of them would have any particular weedy potential in Australia. Most of them came from northern Myanmar and Vietnam and places like that. They'd be great garden plants here if we could get them. Uh, and I'll guarantee none of them are on the icons list. So if I wanted to bring them in, I'd have to go through the rigmarole of getting them mm. accepted. What's the icons list? Well, it's the list of accepted plants we're allowed to have. Um, I don't know why it's called Icon. It's, a, it's letters for something or okay. another. Um, and um, uh, so once upon a time, they had the prohibited list. So you had a list of plants you weren't allowed to bring in, anything else you could bring in, and then they would assess it when it came in and make decisions on whether they thought it was potentially going to be a weed or not a weed or, you know, whatever issues there might be with it. Um, but now it's the opposite. So it's only the things on the list that you can import comparatively straightforwardly. If it's not on that list, you've got to get it on that list if you want to bring it in officially. And um, I know people in the industry, they get people to send them seed from all over the world. Some, some seed gets picked up as it's coming through the post. Others don't. So they play this sort of numbers game. So there's still plenty of seed coming mm. in uh, and much of it uh, not officially um, because yeah, people tell just the difference it. between Fritillaria imperialis seed and Fritillaria thumbergii seed. Yeah. It's yeah. not that much difference. Yeah. Yeah. And not that both of those are probably on the allowed list, yeah. but as an example, yeah. like, a lot of you know, seed you pretty much every allium yeah. has well, that's the same the seed looking yeah. seed and I, some are really yeah. weedy and some aren't. Yeah, and the other issue, of course, is that uh, what they've <clears> done is nowadays you're generally not allowed to import seed from overseas unless it's got a sort of an official envelope that it's in. You can't import mm. something with an envelope that's got handwritten Fritillaria imperialis on the thing because it could be anything in the packet. Yep. You know, it's been sent to you by a, a club or a, an individual or whatever, and so they don't like you doing that. Uh, so if it comes in in a commercial packet with a picture on the front, then it's fine. But they're all the things I don't want. They're either mm. already here or who wants them. Um, uh, it's the really rare things that you can't mm. buy commercially from seed that I want to get. 
Yeah. So I'm basically stymied in every different direction about bringing new plants in. So anyhow, enough of that. <laughs> Go out to the forest. Yeah. Go out to the forest. Well, you guys have been traipsing around the earth um, recently. We're going to get to that in a minute, but I just want to get to some community announcements and open up the phone lines uh, for people to join us. All right, community announcements. So Open Gardens Victoria haven't started back up with the Open Gardens yet, but Jack Semler is doing an online, a series of four online masterclasses over the coming months. So on the, they're on Thursday, so the 7th of September, 5th of October, 9th of November and 8th of Feb next year from 7.30 till 8.30. Uh, Jack is doing a ma- masterclasses on the maximum capacity, uh, lost my words, flower fundamentals, maximum flowers for summer from planning, preparation, propagation and tending to your summer garden filled with flowers. Masterclass will be for everyone. You'll have plenty of time to uh, ask questions of Jack and and get her knowledge out of her brain. Um, The sessions are, if you want to go to all the sessions, it's $170 for all four. Uh, but individual sessions are $50 each. If you'd like more information, jump onto Open Gardens Victoria website. And if you type in, as I was doing the other night, looking for more information, if you type into a Google search, Open Gardens Victoria, Jack Semler, or Flower Fundamentals, there'll be a link that pops up <coughs> in their What's On and Events page. So you can uh, jump in, jump in there and, and book in through the website. Uh, We announced it last week, but just a reminder that Chloe Thompson has recently released a brand new online video series called Behind the Garden Gate. This is on YouTube, five to ten minute videos where she gets to have a sneaky peek uh, behind the garden gates of some private gardens. So there are episodes going to be released weekly. There's three episodes all up. And they're on her YouTube channel called Been There, Dug That, and that's Bean, B-E-A-N. So check that out. They're, um, they're absolutely beautiful videos. Um, her husband, Jer, has done the videography for that. So some amazing drone footage of those gardens too. So you can check that out. And if there's anyone listening in Queensland, their version of Mifcus has been on this weekend, ah. Queensland Garden Expo. So it's the last day today at the Nambour Showgrounds on the Sunshine Coast. The Diggers Club's up there. Our yeah. own Tim Sansom is yeah. up on the Diggers stall too, so you can check that is out. Is Bifkus then? Bifkus, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. I like that. Yes. <laughs> uh, and just a very quick thank you from me to all of our listeners for Radiothon uh, oh, yes. two weeks, two or three weeks ago. We, it was the very first time that we hit our target during the show. We've raised over $13,500 for the Fantastic. radio station so we can um, keep our microphone muffs on for a little bit longer. Yes. Um, all the money goes to keeping the station running for another year and it's the gardening show is a huge contributor to that and like so many listeners were just so, so generous in really, really tough times. And I know AB was like, I was utterly overwhelmed by the generosity of everyone. So I just wanted to say um, a very big thank you to everyone for Radiothon. Fantastic. It was amazing. 
Okay, uh, there's been a couple of text messages come through, but if you have any gardening question for us, the number is 94190155 and the text message line is open. The number for that is 0488 Any of the plants that we talk about today and every week go up onto our Facebook and Instagram pages. So they're both called 3CR Gardening Show. So you can join us there. Guys, there's a new social media platform that's launched this week. At the moment, another one. I know. The gardening show is not going to be jumping on it at the moment. Like, well, I don't want to. I'm already doing Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and YouTube. And YouTube. What, what more could I do? I'm certainly not engaging with TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> you would go wild on TikTok. Yeah, We're going to yeah. talk about this later because I reckon you love it. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> We're sticking with Facebook and Instagram for now. Yeah. Um, if there's anyone podcasting, as you, if you miss the start of the show, if you miss any show, you can listen back on any podcast app. Um, and if you want to email us any questions and photos, the email address is gardening at 3cr.org.au. We often give out two different email addresses. It all goes to the same mm. inbox. So it doesn't matter. Then. It's community radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should see us peddling. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, the number is 94190155 if you want to join us this morning. But let's get to some text messages. Tom from Fitzroy has a question about his indoor plants. So he's got philodendrons and some other aroids. Uh, he fertilises them with slow-release fertiliser pallets. General rule, they've disappeared from the surface of the pot and he'll add some more. Um, now they've mostly disappeared and it's winter but not much is happening. Should I add some more or wait a month, a t- month or two? I'd wait. You don't need to overfeed things during the winter they go, months. Even they your, go dormant. Yeah, in even winter. your indoor plants, where they'll be in a slightly warmer environment than outside, one would hope. Um, they, they need to have a rest anyway. Most plants need to just have that little quiet time for a while before they burst into new growth again. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, once you get past the solstice and, and give it a few weeks after that, well, then you can start thinking about it again. Mm. And it's the same with repotting and any of those other things that you need to do with your indoor plants, don't do it in the depths of winter. No. I wouldn't anyway. Mm. No, I wouldn't. I don't have a single indoor plant. No, I wouldn't have a I don't either in our house. (laughs) Uh, Well, I've tried. No, I've tried over the years, but our house is so dark and Mm. so cold. Um, I mean, I probably could get an aspidestra to survive somewhere if I was really careful. Yeah, that'd be the one. That'd be the one. Um, You could also have some green plastic straps somewhere. No. (laughs) I have a moral uh, obligation not to engage with any plastic plants in any way, shape or form. Which includes plastic lawn. Mm. Um, and that's got to be one of the world's most outrageously stupid things that were ever invented, I think, plastic oh, lawn. Don't get me started. Yeah, I can't You're stand revolting. this stuff. I'm not that keen on lawns, to be honest, yeah, well, either. Yeah. Amen. Well, yeah, lawns yeah. in general can be a waste of space and time. Yeah. Um, but if you're going to have one... At least make it a real one. Mm. You know, it's we yeah. don't need faux anything in a garden, really. Absolutely. You know, so anyhow, so uh, so give the indoor plants a break. Yeah, over just let winter. them rest a little yeah. while. Just you know, water them when needs be, uh, but and otherwise, just let them sit. As yeah, as the days get longer and it generally starts to warm up naturally in the house, 
they start growing again. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah. if they haven't got a lot of fertilizer value left yeah. in the pot, they'll still start to yeah. shoot and grow. Yeah. So, um, uh, so that's when I'd start thinking about it. And also, just be thinking about what time period the slow release pallets are mm. if they're three to four months well i wouldn't be feeding them if they disappear after two or three months yeah, well, i'd exactly. be waiting until after the four months yeah. is up yeah or if they're nine months again you'd only feed them every yeah, nine months or every yeah, 10 months the whole point is to feed them during their growth cycle yeah and that's generally around about nine months and the rest of the time they need to rest anyway so yeah. you don't need to use the nine month one every 12 months mm. ish yes mm. Mm. yep yeah, I think we over we over fertilize plants in general. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yes, I, I think people think uh, if it needs, you know, if if things aren't actually moving the whole time, they've yeah. got to rush out there with a bag of fertilizer for yeah. some reason or another. I, I've got a few fiddle figs in the house, and um, <laughs> I can't remember the last time I fed them. Yeah, well, exactly. And they're growing, and I'll. They'll tell me when they need a feed. Yeah. The new growth will be a little bit yellow or they'll mm. sort of stop growing when I know they should be growing mm. when the weather's mm. warmer, so then I'll give them a feed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's the thing. People see feeding plants as almost like a daily event. It, sh- it probably shouldn't be called feeding. That's the problem because we call it feeding and we feed and we feed three times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but What's your suggestion? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, it's, this has just come out of my mouth right now, uh, but – it's more like vitamins, though, isn't it? It's, it's like you, yeah, you, it's not, you, you, it's not yeah. a meal. It's it's um, just taking supplements. Yeah, yeah. So, so you'd be better off having really good quality potting mix and maybe repotting it once a year yeah. or every couple of years. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. So what we're doing for our plants is yes, adding some uh, like a supplement, a uh, synthetic. Yeah, food. and so. They don't need it all the time, you mm. know. And whilst they're green and healthy looking, then they're probably getting enough out of whatever's there to sustain them. So you don't need to keep shoving food into them. Because the other thing is, especially with potted plants and, and indoor plants, if you keep feeding them, you're going to need to pot them up. And put, mm. uh, and that can be a big job, yeah. having to pot up your indoor. And you need to and move out it. eventually because the plants take over. Yeah. <laughs> well, that'd be all right. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it, I think we you probably need to, um, as as a general rule for all of us, for potted plants, some of them don't need as much fertilizer yeah. as you give them because then you're just going to be potting them up. Yeah, too yeah. often. Actually, yeah. I've got an example of something here which I brought down, which is serendipitous because we're talking about feeding plants. Mm. Uh, this is Cassonia paniculata, the um, cabbage tree from South Africa. The Cassonias, I was down at... Uh, is that the, sorry, is that the common one that we see in other yeah. paniculata? Yeah, yeah. beautiful. And, there, and I bought in a, a mature leaf, which I had to get a bamboo cane to whack off my tree to, last night because I hadn't realised how high up all of the leaves were. Um, but I know of at least two people that have got Cassonias that have been in the same pot for 20 years, and about once a year they sprinkle a few pellets of uh, Osmocote or one of those slow-release fertilisers around them. And they've been in the same pot 20 years and their growth is about half an inch a year. Yeah. Uh, but they're perfectly healthy. Mm. Uh, and if they potted them on and fed them, they'd suddenly get a growth spurt and they'd become a tree. These things have developed these huge, big, fat trunks on them, that sort of like a bonsai thing, with perfectly healthy leaves sitting at the top. Mm. And they actually have a wonderful sculptural quality about them. Uh, and you wouldn't want to pot them on. Yeah, it's a little bit, it has been a little bit bonsai then. Yeah, it has yeah. basically. I, mean, I know Peter Harris at White House Nursery's got one that 
that's been in a pot for at least 20 years. And every time he goes out to a, a, a plant fair or whatever, he takes his big one with him, sits it in the middle, and then he has a whole pile of little ones like the one I bought in sitting around and he sells dozens mm. of them. Smart man. Yeah, so it works really well. And I was down at Rorama Nursery on Thursday doing some filming for my YouTube channel mm-hmm. um, and we did one on Cassonia as a genus because Lyle down there's got 10 of the 20 species in the genus um, and some of them don't look like Cassonia at all. They're really quite fascinating as a genus when you start to see the diversity in them. Um, and they're pretty well all drought tolerant, uh, heat tolerant. Some of them aren't frost tolerant, which is one of the issues with some of the Cassonias. Paniculata is the mountain cabbage tree, so it's fairly cold hardy and I can grow it. He's given me a plant of natalensis, which is supposed to supposed to go deciduous if it gets really cold so that should survive in my climate and it has a leaf that looks like a slightly large liquid amber leaf Mm, really right. weird. Doesn't look like a cassonia at all. Um, and cassonias are sort of cordex type plants when they're young because they get a little swollen base to them that they. It's like keep... a kohlrabi or something. Yes, it does. <laughs> I wouldn't try and eat it. Um, and um, so they can live off what's in there. So if I let that dry out for six months, that plant would still be alive. Mm. Because it can live off what's in its cordex initially. The cordex disappears with time and it just gets a big swollen trunk. Um, But they can sit in a pot for years with no more than cursory watering and virtually no feeding. So, and still look healthy and fantastic. And when they mature, their big leaves are just beautiful. They're gorgeous plants. I love the colour of the of the paniculata yeah. foliage. It's that bluey, yeah, silvery, Yeah, bluey, silvery colour, color. which is lovely. Yeah. Um, and actually, if anybody's in Melbourne Uni grounds at any time, there's a Cassonia court there, and there's a big old plant of Cassonia spicata growing in the middle of this big courtyard, uh, and it is the most remarkable-looking tree. It virtually takes up the whole court. It's just beautiful. Mm. And it's the only court at Melbourne Uni that's not named after a dead white guy. <laughs> <laughs> All the others are, you is know. It, is it actually called Cassonia yeah, Court? Cassonia Court. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's the only one in Melbourne University that's not named after somebody. Who's, who were Cassonias named after, though? Yeah, oh, probably a dead white guy. Yeah, probably a dead so, white guy, yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a plant in between, so I'm quite happy about that. Uh, and it's a remarkable plant. It's definitely worthwhile going and having a look at. Or you can see my footage on YouTube. I did three or four stories at Melbourne Uni around their gardens. I don't know why more people aren't just going in there for a walk around. It's a gorgeous campus to walk around. And and maybe people think, oh, like someone might realise I'm not a student. It's like... Everyone, there's so much diversity yeah. in a university, yeah. and at Melbourne, it's so open. No one is going to question. No, if you're here and, for a class and I don't think they would anyway, because I think they're quite happy for the general public to wander the gardens. I mean, yeah. go into the um, into the system garden. I've been in there with classes. It's, it's easy, fabulous mm. place it's to visit. You know, and the plants there are just outrageous. Um, and there's all sorts of weird and wonderful trees all over that campus. So yeah, go in and have a look at the Cassonia or Cassonia, but have a look at everything else there as well. It's a yeah. really, really interesting place. Beautiful trees. Yeah. So, is. and the, the potting mix you would use for something like that's obviously... Just um, well-drained. It's well-drained, yeah. which would be a similar type of soil to where it's probably growing oh, in the wild. Undoubtedly. Um, you could probably just grow it in a pot of gravel yeah. <laughs> if you wanted but, but to. Going back to the, the text message, though, a lot of those aroids or some of those aroids and other tropical plants that, you, you, that we have as indoor plants... Um, are often uh, often uh, epith- epiphytic, yeah. um, which means the potting mix 
is just something for them to hang on to. Yeah, it's just to keep so them standing. often feeding, you're probably actually better off feeding the foliage, which is where they would get most of their nutrients yeah. from anyway in the up, uh, in the upper canopies of a, of a rainforest. Totally. Um, so foliar feeds might actually be better yeah, bring in for a, indoor bring plants. Bring in a thunderstorm and, and get some lightning happening yeah, yeah, so yeah. that you can yep. get some nitrogen from the and, air. And some <laughs> exotic birds pooing on the leaves. Yeah, that's right, yeah. exactly. Yes, bring in a bird of paradise every so often. <laughs> or let some the cockies in or something. Yeah, yeah. No, they pull them to bits. <laughs> I've, I've got a philodendron, uh, a silver sword, which students gave me as a thank you present, which mm. was just beautiful. One of the um, branches snapped off and it was a really good chunky one. So I thought, oh, I, I just chucked it in a jar of water and I thought, I'll, I'll pot it up when I get to it. I'll just leave it in this water for a little while. It's been in there for nine months mm. and it's it's there's roots in Sounds there great. and I just top the water up every you now and then. You probably sell it for $900 now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Water-grown philodendron. <laughs> yeah, that's there. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, so I think I, we need to be no a little more There's no fertiliser getting yeah, into that yeah. and yeah. it's green and it's just, I think probably because I've had the heater on lately, it's putting on new growth. Mm. So there you go. I haven't even put any. But yeah, so it'd be it'd be good to look at the different type of plants where they come from and what they would how they would get their nutrients in the wild might be a good indication on how to, and when to feed them. Uh, yeah. when you're growing them as indoor plants. I as went well. I went down a rabbit hole uh, a couple of years ago on uh, reading up on ficus lorata, which is the fiddle fig, mm. to work out where they come from, because it and for any and we often say this on the show for any plant in the garden outside you find out where it originates mm, from mm. and what those conditions are and, yeah. you know, see if you, where in your garden you have that microclimate and all that. Same for indoor plants too. So, like, where does it – is it growing in the forest floor? Can you put it in a darker room or is it does it need a lot of light yeah. and it yep. needs a sunny room or the bathroom because it's humid or whatever? So it's just finding out where all those microclimates yeah, are. Yeah, It's the same thing with mm. – and, yeah, soils – and growing yeah, conditions for indoor plants and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Have we All got right. another one? Yeah. Well, let me t- let me remind people that they're listening to Three CR Garden <laughs> yes, Show and idea. who we are. Yes. I'm Chloe Foster. I have Stephen Ryan and Greg Boulderston in with me this morning. We're here till quarter past nine. The number is nine four one nine zero one double five. If you want to speak to us this morning, uh, or the text message line is oh four double eight eight zero nine eight five five. Rosie from Mount Eliza has sent in a text message. Such an interesting discussion about importing plants. Thanks, guys. Never thought about bringing plants in in my bra. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. I might have started something. (laughs) Well, I know of a plant that did get into Australia exactly that way. (laughs) I don't know who the lady was whose bra was involved, um, but it was an oxalis. It was an ornamental oh. oxalis, uh, oxalis palmifrons. Okay. I'd seen palmifrons in South Africa at a flower show and fell in love with it. It's got the most beautiful leaves and it sits like an African violet with all the leaves sort of going smaller and smaller towards the middle. It's got this wonderful symmetry about the plant and these silvery grey palm-like leaves. And I fell in love with this thing. I thought, oh, it won't be in Australia. I won't get it, blah, 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 blah. Uh, anyhow, I got back and I rang a friend of mine who dealt in a lot of um, South African bulbs. And I thought, well, if anybody knows whether it's here, he will. And I rang, rang him up and I said, I saw this oxalis called palmifrons in South Africa. Have you ever heard of it? And do you know whether it's in Australia? And he said, well, it's funny you should say that because a lady who smuggled an oxalis in from New Zealand in her bra um, gave me some bulbs of something she called oxalis palmfronds. 
And it sounds like it might be the same thing. So he sent me a couple of bulbs down and they came up and sure enough, it was Parmafrons. And so he didn't tell me who she was and I'm not sure whether he had a name anyway. So I can't track it back to the lady who smuggled it in. It's probably a safe bet too. (laughs) Yes, it's it's probably better not to know. Um, But yes, so that's happened. So I, and I know it's happened. Yep. <laughs> so there you go. Um, question is, uh, uh, listeners asked a question. Can you spell Cassonia? Oh, C U S O N I A. There we go. Yeah, and as I said, there's 20 species. Probably only three that are regularly available commercially here, and even then, probably Paniculata is the only one you'll come across on a really regular basis. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but definitely worthwhile looking out for. If you want a really sculptural, structural-looking plant, be it for a pot or for the open ground, you could do far worse than planting a cassonia. Mm, Absolutely. Greg, you've Mm. been... Uh, wandering around the Macedon Forest with some 3CR listeners the last couple yeah, of days. Yeah, so Friday and Saturday we had the the fungi tours yeah. uh, that people bought, uh, uh, got with their subscription a couple of weeks ago. Um, and Friday wasn't such a bad day. It was still a bit Weather cold was, yeah. and, and, and it felt a little bit wet, but it was a pretty pleasant day mm. in the forest up there. The, the fungi slowed down a little bit. Um, there was snow... Or it snowed. I don't think it's settled, but it snowed on up the top of Mount Macedon a couple of times over the past few weeks. Oh, right. And usually that's a really good sign that that's the end of the fungi season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If it snows up there, they're just like, oh, we're done. Yeah. Um, a bit like me, really. And <laughs> that seemed to be the case. There was, there were, but uh, I found, we've still found some nice stuff on Friday. And then we had a few extra people along on, on the Saturday's walk. Thank, and thanks to everyone that came out, especially yeah. yesterday where it was like it, it, it was hailed. pretty miserable. It poured with rain as we were starting. It hailed twice. It was misty rain most of the time and there was a terrible wind blowing through the canopy. Um, but I think everyone enjoyed it. And with the extra eyes yes, on yesterday's walk, we actually found a few other quite like interesting little rare fungi as well. Great. Um, one of which I don't see very often, so it's, it's always oh, nice when you see something you haven't seen for a while. Which one was it? Uh, it was a species of hygrocybe. Um, not exactly sure which one it was. I, th- I think it's uh, hygrocybe firma. It's a, so it's a very small mushroom, only maybe a centimetre or so, centimetre and a half tall. Wow. The cap's less than a centimetre across, and it's bright red with yellow gills on the underside. Ooh. That sounds quite um, so, gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, quite quite a nice. I'm assuming little, uh, it's nice and toxic as well, potentially. Probably, I'm not going to eat it. I've got no interest. It looks yeah. it looks like McDonald uh, McDonald's uh, uh, yeah. sign. Yeah. It's got the bright red and yellow. So, yeah. well, there you uh, go. Another point. Yeah, another uh. warning warning sign. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's and uh, so even with the hail and the rain yesterday, I think we we're out for at least three hours. Um, and. Uh, yeah, it's it's. I mean, there's other things to talk about too. It's so the the walk, you know, isn't just about look at that fungi. That's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. and then look I'm at not that, one. that great at that. <laughs> um, it's more about you know these there's you know the three different types of fungi the the mycorrhizal fungi that have a symbiotic relationship with the trees and plants, and the recycling fungi, the saprotrophs that eat up all the dead organic material on the floor for everything from wombat poo up to huge trunks of trees uh, and the uh, parasitic fungi, which always sound really bad, but in a healthy ecosystem, they're as important as predators, uh, keeping uh, a balance uh, over the other inhabitants of the forest. Um, 
and we managed to see one of every one of those fungi out there, which sometimes you might you always see heaps of uh, wood rotting fungi or the mm. recyclers, um, but often. Uh, especially this late in the season, you don't always see mycorrhizal fungi. They're usually a bit earlier in the season. And um, the actual parasites are much rarer. And we happened to see one of the cordyceps. Uh, we found a little cordyceps mushroom. And this one looks like a, a alpine strawberry, but it's only about half a millimetre across. Oh, oh my God. And wow. so you're just looking at a green log and there's this little fleck of red. And you look at it carefully and it's like this little tiny old pine strawberry. Oh, wow. And if you dig down into the wood, there's a wood grub that's accidentally eaten this, the spores of this mushroom and then it's killed it and eaten all its body and grown a club out of its head. Oh, wicked. Uh, out of, oh, out into the, wow. out of the wood. <laughs> that's cool. Um, so, yeah, we got to see some, a couple of uh, interesting little things. Um, and probably for the first time I've actually brought a fungi in to talk about. Really? Um, so I, I, uh, I was walking around the garden last night, not thinking there was much to, to bring down. And I found a, a Lepista nuda, which is a wood bluet. Um, and I'm not really into eating mushrooms that much, mm. but they're um, edible. Aren't but they, these the are quite yeah. edible. Yeah. Um, and they smell amazing. Like mm. they just, the I'll, I'll have a, have a sniff of the gills there, seven. It's, um, Ooh. it's sort of like a floral yeah. Uh, a floral smell. At the under the the top of the mushrooms mm. are, are purplish brown colour, mm. so they're they're not yeah, that see, noticeable I, from the top. In general, I'd be a little nervous of something like that. Yeah. as far as if I was going to take it into well, the kitchen. And the colour of the underside is sort of a, a quite a rich lavender. Yeah, which, um, do, which doesn't generally no, equate no, to food. Not, plants, not equate to food, it? but yeah. it's they smell delightful. They're quite edible. I think they're a, a saprotroph, so they're a recycling fungi. Um, and most of the places I see them, they seem to like conifers. I, I, it's an introduced species, so it's not a native okay. species. Yeah. Um, but they're also renowned for being quite delicious. And I've only tried them once or twice, and they're mushrooms. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they're... they're... I, I got to taste a morel once mm -hmm. uh, that I found on Mount Macedon. Yeah. Um, and you don't see them around very often. I, 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 I see a few and take pictures and people always ask, did you pick it and eat it? And yeah. it's like, no. Yeah, they're, t they're <laughs> very tasty, Greg. I like morels. And, and they're actually such a uniquely in yeah. individual-looking fungi that you can't really confuse them no. with anything else. So you can feel fairly safe. There, there is... I'm actually more nervous picking field mushrooms. I, I would never. I would yeah. never pick a field yeah, I mushroom. Do. I do. Although if yeah. you do and you pick wrong, you'll yeah. just make – You'll just feel like you want to die for a few days. Yeah. yeah you there's, probably won't, but you'll feel like There's it. other mushrooms that if you pick them and you're wrong, you will die in a well, few yeah, days. Well, <laughs> yeah. Don't ever pick a mushroom that's hanging around underneath oak trees. That's a good, that's the, a good start. Because they're, yeah. the they're the death caps. Yeah. But, and they've got so, like a green slime and, uh, on top of them. I love pine mushrooms. Well, the look that, in your pine, eyes when you said that. Oh, pine mushrooms. They're, pine mushrooms are probably the easiest one. They're, they're very easy to pick. They're the only learn ones. how to how to identify They're correctly. the only ones I'd feel confident yeah. in, in um, picking. And, and it's it's always good advice to to um, for people to learn off someone, mm. uh, like go to a foraging yeah. workshop. Well, I had a couple that lived next door to us for many years, an elderly Czechoslovakian couple, and during the last war they lived off things out in the forest, of course. Um, so Vlad and Nora were quite good 
uh, toadstool mushroom collectors. Mm. And they knew which ones to dry, which ones to pickle, which oh. ones to eat fresh, you know, how to use the different ones. But even they came unstuck because they picked something that looked like the toadstool from back home, mm. which turned out not to be, and they ended up in hospital having their stomachs oh, pumped. Yep. Uh, yep. So, you know, even, you know, People who mm. have had years of experience can come unstuck. Uh, Especially sometimes. if you're in a different area and you're yeah. looking at different yeah. environment, yeah. looking them out. Because as I say, the what they look like can vary greatly, or can be really similar to something that's quite edible. Mm. Mm. Um, and yeah, if, so if you if you're learning how to forage mushrooms, one of the best things is not just to learn what you're looking for in the edible species that that you're actually foraging, but all the ones that are really toxic that look like those ones. Yes, yeah. yes, you need to know both, don't yeah. you? Yeah. And that doesn't matter whether it's Lepistanuda, uh, the wood bluets, the pine mushrooms, uh, the field mushrooms, or even if you're looking for magic mushrooms, you've got to find out what the other ones that mm. look like those ones are. can have are, a quite different uh, style yep. of magic. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yes. You, you don't want a trip to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, just a trip. But not yeah, a trip nice to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, and I just want to say thank you for doing what you've done for the listeners and the radio and the gardening show for oh, the that's, last couple I, of days. I love thank doing you that for stuff. running that. Uh, it's it's, it's so almost great. taking not people an, out. An issue for you, no, isn't no. it? Yeah, no. and 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 Jane's doing something similar with a tour around yep. her nursery for a couple of dates too. And she's like, um, "That's not work." Yeah, <laughs> we're wandering great. around the nursery with a glass of wine in our yeah, hands. Yeah, so, that doesn't yeah, sound I'd, too hard. Yeah, but still, thank you very much. No we must get to a caller. Oh, we've got one. We've yeah, got one, Sonia in North Essendon. Good morning. Hello. Sonia. What's going on? Has Sonia fallen asleep? Perhaps. Perhaps. Hello. Ah, there we go. Hello, Sonia. I didn't press the button properly. Good morning. Good morning to you. I love your show. I I, I reckon that's the best show in Tricia. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. Uh, What I'm ringing for, we had um, a, what they call it, National Diggers Community, we, about 10 years ago, from the Muni Valley Council, we asked them to plant it on it under the, um, on a a tree, you know, on a a nature strip, uh, olive trees. And they've grown beautifully. And likely this last two years, they start losing leaves. But before they had a full of fruit and really lovely, and they... You know, and we were wondering now what is happening. It looks like it's some kind of fungi or disease. Yeah, it'll be but fine next not... year. Sonia, it'll be fine next year or this coming Would year. It? Yeah, we've yeah. been through three La Ninas and olive trees like a dry summer. Mm. And so they're going to get all sorts of fungal things on their leaves. They're not going to flower properly and they're not going to fruit properly when you don't get a proper summer. Another uh-huh. thing I would like to ask you, we had a few old, uh, what do you call it, old uh, wattle uh, night or indigenous tree, and they got sort of, as you mentioned, those all those diseases of uh, pinkish and so on, and they rotten through it. Now, this uh, kind of uh, rot falls down on the ground. Uh, can that anything grow, or that, or, or is that disease, uh, or it's contaminated that soil around that uh, that those because they are rotting, that they're falling down those old wattled uh, mm. uh, trees, and, and they have this uh, like a greyish black, uh, uh, like a dust, or you could uh, monster. It's a fungi. You could mm. call it. 
Yes. yes. Yeah. What is it that uh, dangerous to uh, spread it or, or plant anything there or or is that a disease or is, is, it, is the soil that around them contaminated? Because I put um, uh, one um, little uh, passion fruit and uh, uh, where that tree died and simply doesn't go anywhere, but passion fruit further down. 10 meters is grown beautifully. So I was wondering, is that soil contaminated? I'd say no. Um, it's just a okay. fungi that's uh, cleaning up the dead material. It's exactly what happens in nature. It's probably what I you think. want, actually, because it's mm. going to... So the, the growing thing might be from the resins out of the tree that was mm. there or um, mm -hmm. rather yeah. than the fungi itself. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so the... Uh, I, I can't think of anything that w would be bad. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah, most things that rot fungi. dead wood aren't going to attack live plants because they're a different group, aren't they, Greg? Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, and I'm just sort of thinking through if it's any of the the parasitic fungi that uh, – but, no, it's it, – it, the, the fungi basically make the soil. So mm. uh, if there's fungi in there eating d dead plant material or dead organic matter – that's a benefit. It's making soil for you. So I, I certainly oh, wouldn't yeah, discourage because that. Because it does. It, it, it made that nearly two inches of the dark soil on top mm. of it. Yeah, so it's yeah, not an issue. Yeah. And whatever's not going right with the young passion fruit, and again, it could just be um, the fact that we didn't get a proper summer in the last couple of years. Um, passion fruits like plenty of heat in summer as well. Uh, so it could just be a, 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 a climatic issue. Okay. All so right. I wouldn't worry about it. Okay. Thank you very much. All That's right. a Bye. pleasure. Sonia. All the best, Sonia. See you later. Bye. Okay. And we've had a couple of more text messages come through. Peter and Vicky from Notting Hill said they visited the system garden last Monday afternoon. They were there for about an hour and a half. Um, the only potential problem for people is that the garden is closed on the weekend, but their Jack Russell had. A lot of fun while they were there as well. <laughs> I'm not sure whether I approve of that, but anyhow. <laughs> Keep it on a lead. It's yeah, all right. Yeah, um, Okay, guys, this one's a bit of a long one and someone needing a plant ID. Can you guys help me identify a tree? My family's garden in Bendigo growing up in the 70s, there was a tree that their mother called a ghost tree. It was a feature tree about four metres tall, six wide, it had variegated leaves most of the oh, year, easy. reasonably common in Bendigo gardens at the time. Haven't seen it anywhere else since. The only tree I can find vaguely fits it is a Davidia, but I'm not no. convinced that this is the tree. Can you guys suggest? It's easy. Oh. It's a variegated um, box elder, Ace Nagundo. Okay. So it's a North American tree mm -hmm. and there's a silver variegated one, there's a golden variegated one, there's a gold leafed one, there's one that also has purple new foliage but goes green when it's fully mature and there's a green leaf one that goes scarlet in the autumn and has reddish stems in the winter called sensation. So there's a whole range of different acenagundas. So it's A-C-E-R-N-E-G-U-N-D-O, mm -hmm. acenagundo, um, and it's commonly known as a box elder. Um, the variegated ones are still out there and about, um, so you can sometimes buy them as bare-rooted trees in the winter. Uh, they're not 100% stable, which is my only real 
hesitation about them. And the straight form can get quite weedy because it has lots of fertile seed. They're often not very good-looking trees. Yeah, either. they can be a bit scruffy-looking. <laughs> I've I mean, got a, a uh, violaceum at home yeah. and the flowers are beautiful. Yeah. But the rest of the year it's like, oh, I wish I'd have planted something else there. <laughs> Yeah, well, we all do that. You grow a good climber up at Greek. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's what it is, Ace and Agunda, and they used to call them uh, box elders or ghost maples mm-hmm. was the common name for them, um, uh, which would have given you a much better hint on actually where they belonged. Um, so, yeah, that's yep. that's what it was, and they were extremely popular back in the 60s and earlier. So, yeah, there were lots and lots of variegated box elders planted back then. Beautiful. Well done. Well done for IDing that from a description. Yeah, well, it's not always that easy, but what was said was enough for me to be fairly confident. And sometimes all you need is some of those key facts. Mm. Absolutely. It has green leaves usually doesn't work. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. and white flowers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, a few more text messages coming in. So the number is 94190155 if you want to speak to me, Chloe, Stephen or Greg this morning. And the text message line is 04. Four double eight eight zero nine eight five five. Vel from Cheltenham asks: I have two Daphne's in pots taken from cuttings from her daughter's. That's also got the plant in a pot. It's two years now. Why are the flowers white with the original plant being pink? Could be two things. It could sport. I mean, it's very possible you can get a sport, which is just a variant colour. Camellias do it all the time. Um, but it's more likely light, a light issue. I think if the Daphne's in a fairly shady aspect, then its flowers will be paler. Uh, if you put it out into more sun, and people tend to put their Daphne's in too much shade, I think, anyway. Um, um, so if you move the pot into a sunnier aspect, preferably not somewhere that's going to cop the hot sun when it's 45 degrees in a howling northwesterly, um, but somewhere where it gets a fair bit of sun, uh, the flowers are likely to tinge pink better. So it could be either way. So it could be a sport, and that happens. Uh, I haven't heard of it happening with a pink Daphne turning white, but there's no reason why it couldn't. Um, But I reckon it's light more than anything else. Mm, Okay. All right. Uh, Okay. Next text message. Hi, Greg and panel. In my ferocious attempts to repeatedly whippersnip weedy oxalis into oblivion, I sometimes hit my precious fungi, bush fungi, accidentally. Have I stopped them reproducing this year or will they return uh, next year? So once the, once the uh, when fungi, well, what we think of as mushrooms when they're young, they're usually uh, coated in something called a universal veil, which sort of protects the gills and the cap. So the universal veil on Amanita muscari, which is the red mushroom with the white spots, the white spots are actually the remnants of that universal veil. So when it's smaller, they're completely white. Mm. And that's when all those spots are close enough together where you can't see the red. And then as the mushroom expands, the universal veil breaks. The gills are often protected on most mushrooms by another veil or they, when they're still attached to the, the stipe uh, or they're in a little sack. Um, as soon as the gills break free of those veils, they're dropping spores. They're, that's sort of when they're like, mm. okay, we're ready to drop spores now, so the veil will break away whatever type of veil it's got. If you whip a snippet after that happens, you're basically helping spread the spores around. Cool. So um, as soon as the gills are exposed to the atmosphere, it's going to be dropping spores, 
So and they're not that, doing it just as they're rotting down. They're doing it virtually yeah. from maturity right and through. At that point, um, so so again, going back to foraging mushrooms, if you're picking mushrooms that where the gills are open to the atmosphere, you're actually helping the mushroom. It's like you know you're not damaging the organism itself by picking the mushroom. It's like picking an apple off a tree. Mm. Um, uh, so yeah, hitting it with a whippersnipper's you know, probably not as effective as the spores floating out onto the atmosphere and away for a couple of weeks, but it's not it's not a concern. Good you just miss out on what on watching them on watching go through it. their processes yeah. all. Yeah. yeah. Um the only thing I would say if you're whippersnipping oxalis is to wear a mask because the whippersnippering can sort of aerosolize oxalic acid, mm. which isn't good for your lungs. So I know no. industry when they're um, doing weed control of oxalis, we'll pop a mask on. You so, can taste it too because I've done that before. I've heard and that. It's like it's, you it's can very have bitter. That, that bitter mm. sort of yeah. sour taste. Sour. Yeah. And yet <laughs> yeah. they're using oxalis leaves in salads. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I don't and, think – And a few uh, edible plant people are very annoyed about it because it's not really an edible plant but it has that tang yeah. and a few leaves scattered through a salad. Yeah, I think that's fine. Yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be uh, – yeah. It's not the best thing to eat a whole. Uh, no, you wouldn't want to eat a, a whole, whole meal out of it. But yeah. uh, as a garnish, I don't think it's. Uh, yeah. Go slow. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get to another caller. And good morning to Gloria in Bulleen. Oh, good morning. Good morning. This is my favourite because I fly in bed and listen. <laughs> oh, good. I do that on the week when I'm not hosting Gloria. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But anyway, you're talking back to Sonia. Yeah. I'm getting a bit of an echo. Is that a, can you hear it? No. no, you're clear for us. Yeah, it's gone now. Um, and I'm looking out at my Cassonia. You were talking about Cassonias. And I've got a Cassonia staccata. Yeah. We've been in this house for 30 years, and the previous owners had it as an indoor plant. So when we came, I noticed that there was a pot around the trunk of this. That's how I knew they'd had it as an indoor plant. It's now about 30 feet tall. Yeah. And it's, the fruit, it's fruiting at the moment, which looks absolutely wonderful, except that I'm a bit worried because uh, I run past it in case it falls. <laughs> <laughs> the chances are pretty slim, I would have thought, but anyhow. I don't know. I don't know. We had one of the trunks, which looked like an elephant trunk, over on the next door neighbour, and I had to get an arborist in to cut it off because I was afraid it was going to drop on one of their children. But um, it looks absolutely spectacular at the moment. But I was going to say the Cassonia paniculata was at the Melbourne University, and it hovered over the bike racks until it collapsed onto the bike. <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw that. No, I didn't see the paniculata. I only know the spicata that's in the Cassonia court area, although I know they have planted some young Cassonias uh, in the Latitude Gardens. Um, they call it the Latitude Gardens because they've sort of got a Chilean garden, they've got an Australian garden, they've got a South African garden, and there's some young Cassonias in the South African part of the Latitude Gardens, and they're starting to get a little bit of size to them now, but they're still quite small. Is that at Melbourne Uni? Yeah. Oh, we're about... What part? Oh, I don't know. I can walk you past it, but uh, it's a series <laughs> okay. of... Okay, let's go for a 
Yes, it's a series of beds that are sort of rectangular with paths running between them in front of a fairly modern-looking building. Uh, and at oh. one end, they've got some Chilean ombu or some Argentinian ombu trees at the top end. And one of them apparently is a classified tree or something, and they actually had to move the building slightly to protect the tree uh, or not put it exactly where they wanted to. Um, And so, yeah, they're called the Latitude Gardens. And I have to say, some of them are really boring. They need a bit of an oomph up. And uh, Virginia, the... um, Head gardener there and I are going to be in discussion about what she can plant, particularly in the South American beds, uh, to sort of up the ante a wee bit and make it a bit more interesting. Um, but there's, yeah, there's a couple of Cassonias against a, a cream brick building just past the end of the Latitude Gardens that are actually getting up quite a nice size now. And is that the paniculata or the. Uh, uh, no, there's Sphaerocephala and. Could be paniculata, the other one, and I've got a sense they might have a third, but I can't remember now. It's a while since I've been in there. Yeah, well, <clears throat> this potato of ours is fruiting at the moment, which I love to see it fruit. Yeah. Oh, they're remarkable trees. And, in fact, anybody who wants to see them should go down to Rorama Nursery at Lara because Lyle down there has 10 of the 20 species. Oh, Wow. And so it's, and he's also got a couple of weird forms that have come up from seed. He's got a, I think it's a spicata with extra cut foliage. So it's sort of feathery and almost looks like cool. ferny foliage. Oh, it's cool. really amazing. Um, it's worth a trip. Oh, Gloria, R- down R- to Rama Rama. is fabulous. We've just he specialises in weird. So yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's the whole point of his nursery is to have the weird, exactly. the unusual, the different. Quite wonderful. Well, listen, anyway, I just want to let you know about Mike Pistonius Picata. Well done. Thank you very much for the show. You're welcome. Thank you for calling in. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Roy Raymond Nursery. Let's chat about it. I I am embarrassed to admit that I only went there for the first time a few weeks ago. What? I know. How could you have possibly missed it for all this time, Chloe? Shame on me. I mean, it is just one of the most amazing places. We're going to do lots of filming down there for the YouTube channel. So on Thursday we did the Cassonias, so we did a story specifically on those, and we did a story on Cordex plants, plants that get the big swollen bases to them, and there's lots of different genera that have produced plants that produce these Cordexes, and they've become something of a collector's thing. Mm. I mean, they're probably not the sort of thing that would in- interest people who grow roses and perennials yeah. <laughs> because they're, they're odd, they're not beautiful. Uh, but he's got some Dioscoreas down there, those big elephant's foot things, and he's got one that's got to be about a metre and a half by a metre and a half, just the cortex. <laughs> Cheapers. And it's just humongous. Mm. I've never seen anything quite like it with this weird sort of... Uh, patchy split sort of bark on it uh it's just the most remarkable looking plant so we'll be going down to do more stories with lyle in due course um because his collection is just remarkable and everybody should visit rorama nursery it's it's well worth a trip so it's just it's in yeah it's in lara so it's a bit if you're in melbourne it's a little bit of a it's a bit of a drive, yeah. but you can stop by Werribee Park Mansion and see the heritage fruit orchard yeah, and all that. Of course you can. Make a day of it. And that's what we did a few weeks ago with a group of students. Or you could go on to Geelong and go to the Botanic Gardens Absolutely. in Geelong and then come back to Rorama after you done that. Yeah. Uh, and it, you can look down into it from the freeway. So mm. it's a little bit of a sort of a circuitous thing to get actually into Lyle's car parks. You've sort of got to go off and, and around a bit of a circuit to get back to the nursery. But you can actually look down into the nursery off the freeway on 
the way to Geelong. And there is a big sign. Yeah, you can see it from the freeway. There is a big yeah. sign saying Roy Raymer. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of part like there's out yeah. of nowhere sort of is a lot of dense palm trees yes. planted, which is the best way to describe it, yeah. I think. And you you just got to see it. I mean, not only is the nursery fascinating, it's and anybody who's keen on plants, it's like letting you loose in a lolly shop. Yeah. I mean, I can't leave there without some plants. I, I, I didn't walked plan. out with two the other day. I walked out with two as well. Yeah, and I could have gone even a little bit madder, uh, but um, I, I came home with a Cassonia and I came home with uh, one of the shrubby acanthuses from Kenya uh, that I didn't have in my collection. I knew about it, but I hadn't been able to source mm. one. And Lyle had uh, acanthus eminens there, so I was able to get a plant of that to bring home as well for my national collection. Very nice. So, oh, I came home with something a little bit regular. I bought two Bacchalsia citriodora, lemon metal, yeah. and something I was not expecting when I went there was to see a whole heap of regular nursery plants. Oh, yeah, there's, there's still plenty of normal so, sort of stuff. Yeah, and I, I loved that. So mm. he's got all the weird, quirky stuff, a huge range of succulents yeah. and different weird cacti. Yeah. And then the display gardens around the back. It was absolutely incredible, but it was really – it was also you could get your regular plants there, so yeah. you could go in get some weird stuff, but you can also go in and get all your regular stuff as yeah. well. Fruit trees are in really good condition. Yeah, it was it was just wonderful. Yeah. yeah, and that display garden that was all built out of spoilage from the freeway when it went through. <laughs> he had I don't know how many truckloads of. Uh, dirt dumped on his block. That's why it's got all these hills and mountains oh, okay. everywhere. It's all been built out of stuff that came off the freeway. Great. Uh, and it's remarkable. He inherited a whole pile of big succulents from Rudolf Schultz down in the Western District when he passed away. So he dug up 30-foot uh, yuccas and all sorts of things and bought them back and planted them in the place. So the place looks like it's been there for 70 years yeah. and it hasn't. Right. Um, and, yeah, it's, he, and he tries everything. I mean, there's plants growing down there I wouldn't have expected. I saw a nothophagus, a, a southern beech growing in his garden down there. Uh, there's all sorts yeah. of wacko things that you just wouldn't think would grow in that area. Well, I saw a ficus damaropsis yes, growing. Did yes, you see that? Yeah. I couldn't find any in pots, but... Um... Yeah, well, he's, he's probably got some somewhere. I know. Um, you just need to ask sometimes. Yeah, I, uh, we didn't leave enough time to stay there. Yeah. I should have. Uh, yes, yes. Well, it's a rookie error. It's a, now another trip you may have to make, isn't oh, it? Oh, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to go back again. <laughs> the Werribee Heritage Orchard is having a day, a, a Sunday open day, selling a lot of fruit trees in mid-August, so I'm going to go there and then I'm going to go down to Roy Raymond oh, again. Yes, yes, that sounds like a great plan. Oh, yeah. yes. I'd be up for that. Um, so anyhow, so yes, so we had a great day down there on Thursday filming Cassonias and other things. Um, and I've still got about four storylines I can think of down there that I'd like to do. Uh, for mm. the YouTube channel. One is just talking to Lyle about where he started and what he's done and why, the where, the how, all that sort of stuff with his display garden and stuff. Mm. So his background and how the nursery evolved and started uh, I think would be a, a great storyline. And he's got other collections of all sorts of amazing plants down there. So I'm sure there's genus-related stories I can do down oh, there for sure. of all sorts. Um, and with all the weird species, yeah. like you could do a common genus that we think is common, but talk about the unusual species. Well, I've species. actually got one that I've thought of, euphorbia. Um, oh. He's got so many 
South African and Madagascan succulent euphorbias that don't look like anything like the euphorbias we're used to seeing as a garden plant. Perfect. Uh, and so I think his succulent euphorbias would be a great story. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll do one later on about the normal garden euphorbias and have two stories out of the genus. Yeah. I mean, it's a genus of about 2,500 species. Oh, it's, God. I think, the world's biggest genus. Oh, really? Is euphorbia. And so there's got to be more than one story in a group They've of plants. They fit themselves like... into a few nature, niches, haven't they? Oh, yes. Mm. Yeah, so, so from humble little weeds up to some amazing yeah. plants. So, yeah, so there'll be lots more stories down with Lyle, I'm sure. Beautiful. <laughs> I must remind listeners uh, that you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm Chloe Foster, and in the studio with me this morning, I have Stephen Ryan and Greg Boulderston, and I reckon we've got a pretty good coverage of plants yeah. knowledge this morning. And Stephen, what I want to say is your YouTube channel, I was watching a few videos yeah. while you were away, I yeah. think, but I was watching the the Araucaria conifer video that you oh, did at yes. Melbourne. Yes, at Melbourne Botanic Gardens. Yeah, yeah, you know I do love that genus, that yeah. group of plants. But it's so awesome that you're doing that is – Getting the information that's in your head, and there is so much information in your head. Yeah, I don't know where it comes from, but and, anyhow. And putting it out somewhere so it doesn't get lost and yeah. it's on, you know, be on YouTube forever. Oh, God. <laughs> I'll be forever young. Yes. <laughs> or middle aged. Um, but Who cares? yeah, so, yeah, so we did, we had fun with the Botanic Gardens actually, because we did. I think three or four stories down there, and we'll probably go back and do that again. Uh, my next major botanic gardens I want to engage with, actually, funnily enough, in the spring is the Melton Botanic Gardens because uh, there's oodles of stories Ooh, down there. Yeah. So um, uh, we'll go down and talk to John Bentley about its um, its beginnings and how it happened and, and, and about the Friends Group and, and their push with the local council to create this whole thing in the first place. And then we'll do some specific stories on specific groups. Uh, they're Erymophilus... Uh, are definitely up there as far as I'm concerned, and probably their smaller eucalypts. Oh, please do an episode on yeah. the small on oh, yeah. yeah Some well, of those eucalypts the, are just amazing. They're just gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous, and they don't get any more than. Two or, th- or three meters. Some of them. Yeah. Some of them. Perfect are, garden plants. Some of them are shorter than me, and they're not going to get much higher. Like, yeah. it's we just don't incredible. think about that when we think of that genus. So no. Yeah. So there's oodles of stories down there to do for YouTube yet too. So yeah. So we're having a lot of fun mm-hmm. uh, doing all this stuff, yeah. and uh, well, I'm hoping our view, our listeners here, will be viewers there as well because uh, uh, most of the videos are twenty to thirty five minutes, so they're good meaty stories mm. and. Uh, should have oodles of information in them. And uh, I've been sending oodles of footage and stills back from our overseas trip because um, we did 21 days in southern Spain and then 21 days in northwest France. And so I've been sending Matthew a whole pile of, uh, of stuff and we're going to try and cobble together some stories about the Spanish and French tours as well. Beautiful. Which will be fun, I think. Yeah. Because uh, it's saw some amazing places and gardens and plants. And Let's things. get to that in a moment. There's a couple of text messages. We'll do that next. A right. um, couple of text messages to get through. Uh, John from Northcote, can you please recommend a nursery where he can find a red camellia reticulata? Not many people are growing reticulatas these days because they've got to be grafted. You can't just grow them on their own roots, so you always have to pay a little more for them. Uh, I think the only nursery I can think of that's probably supplying a few reticulatas might be Yamina Rare Plants up at um, Monbolk. Um, I know Peter has um, uh, featured them on one or two of his... 
Instagram. social media, Instagrammy things and what have you. So he might be one of the few still growing the occasional reticulata camellia. They're really hard to get. They, Yamina are on, you can buy online now too, mm. but it might be worth giving them a call. Yeah, I would give them well. a call first. Yep. Uh, it's Y-A-M-I-N-A, Rare Plants. Uh, it's at Monbolk. Uh, give them a ring or if you're having a day off, go up to the hills and, you know, go and visit him and yep. have a look and see what he's got. Yeah. Um, and uh, I know he was growing a few different reticulata camellias, so you might get one that way, but I can't think of anywhere else. All the big camellia growers seem to have stopped doing them or they don't exist themselves. Okay. I mean, Camellia Lodge is gone. Um, I don't think Rodo Glen Nursery up in the patch, which is a wholesaler, uh, but they grow thousands of camellias, but I don't think they're doing any reticulatas. Mm. Uh, might be worth calling them yeah, yeah, and seeing where you, they could, you could source them from. If they're growing any, that's Roto another possi- possibility. Ring Rodo Glen Nursery at the patch and ask them who are their suppliers perhaps close to you uh, or who they supply close to you and they may be able to or you may be able to order one through that nursery via your local retailer. So that's a possibility as well. All All the best, John. Let us know how you go. Nick from Healesville. Good morning, everyone. Uh, We need to make a retaining wall near several plum trees. The initial plan was treated pine sleepers, but chemical leaching near edible fruits might not be wise. Any ideas from the panel? All right. Well, I don't know how much leach is out, but, you know, safe is better probably. So I probably wouldn't use treated pine, although I'm told they don't use the arsenate of lead stuff in the treated pine. They haven't for a long time. So it's probably not as necessarily a problem as it once was um but you could go for the um plastic alternatives the e-wood type alternatives that are made out of uh, recycled plastics yeah uh they're apparently quite safe um and e-wood is back on the market again uh they stopped manufacturing for a while and the guys who owned the company were moving on into other sorts of recycling machinery and they've now sold e-wood uh and it now belongs to somebody else and i haven't really made contact with them yet but I must at some stage. Um, So they are now manufacturing it again, and it's sort of a charcoal-y grey colour, and it's a really good product. I mean, it's as solid as, and you can buy sleeper half width of a a normal railway sleeper, but the same length and height. Yeah. Uh, So sort of half sleepers uh, from E-Wood, and they're easy to work with. You can cut them with a circular saw. Uh, Just watch out for microplastics flying around when you're cutting them. Yeah. Well, if you can make – if you can buy them and use them intact, it's probably the best way to go. Uh, But um, they'd be one of the – Best alternatives. And, of course, once you've got them in place, in theory, they could be there for the next 50 or 100 years. Yeah. There's red, red gum sleepers if you can if you want to yeah. check that they're sort of sustainably sourced, but they're not usually treated. No. Depending on how big the wall is too, stones yeah. are really good. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. a stone wall is great, well, you but can it's do a it lot yourself. slower. Um, yeah. And, yes, you can do it yourself if you've got a sense of how to put stone yeah. together so that and, it doesn't just And that might up, depend on what stone you choose. Like if you've not never built a stone wall before, don't. Pick out round boulder stones. Yeah, because like they're really hard to work with. Yeah, get like bluestone blocks or or maybe a, um, a sandstone. There's, yeah, there's, sort of there's a lot of, sort of Castlemaine uh, area that uh, produce a lot of rock from the gold gold mine quarries and whatnot. Um, the rocks are naturally sort of rectangular. And you just stack them on top of each other. Yeah. Or grey slate's really cheap and yeah. can make really nice walls too. It just depends how tall it is, if it's like six feet tall. And sometimes not. there's not much cost difference between doing mm-hmm. that versus doing a 
a retaining wall. Well, as well. especially if you're doing the actual work yourself. Yeah. And you could um, use breeze blocks yeah. as well, you know, the concrete yeah. breeze blocks that can work. Uh, I mean, it's not, I don't think, aesthetically as pleasing, but you can always grow things over yeah, things to sure. sort of soften them and hide them yep. a bit. Uh, but it depends, like, if you can lean the wall back a little bit so mm. it's not dead, like, straight up and down, you can open yourself to a lot more interesting yeah. things where it's you're basically creating another habitat to e- grow things. And the gabion walls, too, are yeah. another um, good option that's yes. easy yeah. to do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Instead of going with So there's a few ideas, enough to confuse you. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, John from Marysville is asking about a Balua Daphne. Yes, Daphne Balua. That's flowering now. Can he transplant it? It's about 60 centimetres high and in the ground. Daphne's hate being shifted. Mm. I mean, it can be done. I know people that have shifted Daphne's and it's been fine. Uh, I would prefer to buy another young one and plant it where you want it than to shift one if it's in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, if it's got to go from where it is, uh, then you've got little to lose. Maybe you try take some cuttings before you yeah, do it. Yeah, you could try some cuttings <laughs> of it. Um, but, you know, Daphne Balua grows fairly quickly. A replacement plant can be grown quite fast. So if you don't have to move it, just leave it alone is my advice. But if you do have to take it out for whatever reason, I guess you might as well shift it and try. Uh, And I'd do it now if you can, try and dig a decent ball of root system with attendant soil uh, so that you're moving something that's, you know, a little less disturbed. Uh, But it has a quite weak root system underneath it and there's a good chance that all the, pot, all the soil will fall off anyway mm. uh, if you try and move it. Um, so, yes, there's a serious risk in trying to move it. So mm. you just need to be aware of that and whether it's worth it. All right. Good luck, John. Um, you are listening to 3CR Gardening Show. I'm Chloe Foster and I have Stephen Ryan and Greg Balderson with me this morning. Stephen, you've been away for a while. About eight weeks. Eight weeks. Yes, it's the longest. And you've come back at a really cold time. Yeah, but the winter's not going to be as long for me. (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) And that's what I keep telling myself, even (laughs) though I'm struggling to get used to the cold weather here, because in Spain and France, the temperatures were high 20s, early 30s nearly every day. Um, And it was sunny most of the time. We only got rained on once, and then it came down in torrential masses of rain in in Normandy but fortunately we were visiting a a big old chateau and were able to move into a building while the rain was happening and then we were able to move back out again and then step over the creeks that were running down the middle of the driveways and paths. Um, So you're just on two two tours back to back. Back to back tours. So we did southern Spain. So we started in Seville. We worked our way down and around. We went through Toledo, uh, Cordoba, uh, Ronda, uh, and eventually ended up at Madrid. Um, And we did gardens and cultural sites. So we went to somewhere I've always wanted to go, which was the Alhambra Gardens, uh, which were amazing but of course you always end up there with thousands of other tourists in some of those places Mm. so there's the downside of going to those popular um, open to the public places so I guess from a perspective of value I think we got far better value out of some of the private gardens we got access to where um, in a couple of cases we actually had the owner or the landscape designer taking us around the garden and explaining it to us and all that sort of thing which was fantastic. Mm. Um, Of course the south of Spain has got a Mediterranean style climate much like we have down in southern Australia so the plant palette tends to be somewhat similar and in Spain it's not about plants so much it's about landscape and views and what have you. Uh, 
So the plant material tends to be mainly fairly predictable. So there's lots of box hedging, there's lots of olive trees, lavender, rosemary, you know, all those predictable sort of um, Mediterranean style plants. So for a plantsman, it wasn't quite as in, engaging mm. as it might have been if there'd been some rarer things that I could look at. Uh, but the landscapes were fabulous and we had dinners in, in palaces. We had uh, uh, amazing visits to things like the Prada Museum in Madrid and some of the artworks in those places are just outrageous. So, you know, it's about culture as well as garden. So any tour I lead, we, we try and mix it up a bit um, because often a husband and wife team will go and one of them will be the really passionate gardener yeah. and the other one isn't necessarily yeah. the passionate gardener and they're following along because they, the other one won't go without them. Yep. So you've got to have things for everybody. Um, but I have to say the Northwest France one is one of my favourites and I'm doing it again in 25, so not this coming year but the following. Um and we do Normandy and Brittany, and up in that northwest area of France, they get lots of rain and their grass is always green and their trees are always verdant looking, uh, and all of the nutty plant collectors have sort of filtered <laughs> into that area of France, and the plant material is just mind-blowing. I mean... Did you bring any back through uh, your bra? No. <laughs> I am actually building up towards a bra <laughs> as one gets older. Uh, but no, uh, I'm one of those people that would look guilty even if I'm not doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I wouldn't be game to try yeah. it. And, of course, with my profile, if I got caught smuggling plant material, uh, it'd be all over the front page of the age before you know it. So I yeah. wouldn't be game to go down that path, I have to say. But... <laughs> The thought was there. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah, and um, some of these so people... So you're saying Craig had it in his bra? No. <laughs> <laughs> now there's a thought. Um, anyhow, no, we, we there was one plant collector we visited. His mm. name's Louis and his garden's called Ker Louis. And he has gone to northern Myanmar and northern Vietnam and all these places and bought back plant material to his mm. garden in, in France. And he's got plants there that nobody else in France has got that are rare in the wild that are just truly amazing and believe it or not one of the well I got really carried away by the Aureliaceae family he had lots of Schaffleras and Brasiopsises and uh, and and Calipanixes uh, uh, and all sorts of weird and wonderful Aureliaceae in fact I think he said he had 60 different plants in the Aureliaceae family but believe it or not one of the highlight plants for me was a Fatinia. Oh. <laughs> and you wouldn't have picked it for a Fatinia. Oh, really? Yeah, it was, uh, well, as it turns out, it's probably uh, Fatinia integrifolia. Um, he had it listed on, he, he's got little uh, aluminium labels hanging on everything, and he'd misspelt the name he'd been given, and he had it as Fatinia uh, rianthus, spelt with Y-R-A-N-T-H. Anyhow, I got back and I started doing some research just for the fun of finding out about this plant, because mm. I know I'll never get it, um, and it turned out it was was Myranthus, so he'd missed the M, uh, and then Myranthus has been changed and it's now Integrifoli. So at some point I've got to get in touch with him and let him know what research I've done. Uh, but this thing had big leathery leaves. Uh, I'd say in the old measurements about 10 inches long. Uh, they were thick and leathery. You could virtually 
twist them in half and they'd snap, you know, so they're quite hard and leathery. They were heavily veined in the top, so the whole leaf was really interestingly patterned. And it was this weird, open, airy sort of large shrub, almost looked like it wanted to lean into things and become almost scandent. Mm. Um, and as the leaves died, they went bright red. So old leaves just went bright red and, and it had bare stems and most of the leaves congregated towards the tops of the stems. It looked nothing like a fetinia wow. at all. Yeah, right. um, and, yes, he took me in and he showed me this plant and he said, I think this is the only one in France. Uh, someone named it for me that had a knowledge of the plants of northern Myanmar or wherever it came from. Um, and uh, it was truly remarkable. Right. And, and I love when that happens because you go somewhere, you see something that's so out of character for the genus that you're familiar with um, that it just broadens your mm-hmm. whole concept. And you go, all right, Fatinia. Ugly, dark green, red-tipped, <laughs> overused. Sc- overused screening shrub with smelly white flowers. Not exactly a great sales pitch. Uh, but you saw this yeah. fetinia and you go, my God, what a sculptural, interesting foliage plant yeah. this thing is. Uh, so unlike anything I've seen in the genus before. And so you could assume that the flowers are similar on the, uh, between them. I found them. some images and, yeah, the flowers look like they're little white flowers in, yeah. mm. in clustery heads. It certainly wasn't in flower when I was there. or It would have at least given away its uh, its rosaceous background to me. I don't think I would have pinned it down to Fatinia in my head, um, yeah. but I would have picked it into the right family, I'm sure, if it had been in flower. But out of flower, I couldn't even put it in a family. So I bet, like you were saying before, Greg, if someone does the DNA test, testing on this, they'll probably get busted up and will probably oh, – it might mm. be in something different. Splitters you just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, and it will potentially it. because Fatinia has already been uh, – well, some things have been pulled out, some things have been loaded in. So Fatinia bravadiana is – it's in a new that's, genus. That's in that, a new genus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fatinia bravadiana and Fatinia velosa are in a – Genus that starts with P and I can't remember. Mm. Uh, but then Heteromeles arbutifolius has been pulled into Fatinia. So it's sort of, it's probably mm. got about the same number of species as it started with, but some have been taken out and some have been mm. pushed in. So mm. goodness knows. We've had a couple of calls and some text messages come through right, and I'm just conscious get, of yeah. time. Yeah, we're running out already. It's terrible. Yeah. Uh, we must say good morning to Margot near Kyneton. Oh, hello, Margot. Hello, everybody. Hello, Margot. <laughs> Just a very quick tip for that person who was wanting to move a Daphne. Oh, yes. Thank you. I, I had to move 10 Daphnes, which were all healthy and rather large and beautiful. And I thought, right, I'm not going to kill every one of these. So I experimented and half of them I just moved as is, as carefully as possible. They all died. Yeah. The, the other five that I moved, I chopped back really quite hard. All right. And they just took off the next Oh, spring. there you go, so, heavy pruning. Yeah, heavy pruning is the key because you're cutting off some of the roots, I suppose. But, yeah, yeah they never look better because they were nice and dense from that point. Good. Well, Beautiful. that's a very useful tip, Margot. Thank you for that. No worries. Thank right. you, Margot. Bye-bye. Catch you soon. Bye. Bye. And a bit of a stretch. Um, good morning to Mim in Collingwood. Oh, good morning. Oh, Stephen. Stephen, you just make me absolutely oh, long to go to that tour to, to Normandy. Well, you could in two You'll years' time. Book yourself you. in. <laughs> well, I'm going to think about it because I have Normandy ancestry. Oh, well, there you go. So, so you need to go back to your roots. I think I do. Now, talking about roots, 
Um, I wonder, I wonder, Stephen, if you have any um, prunus mumae. I know it's very unlikely. No, look, I don't have it. Um, I have stocked it off and on over the years, and one or two of the big, yes. big rare, bare-rooted tree growers often stock them. Um, mm. But as much as I adore the flowers on prunus mumae, I hate the tree. It's rather gawky. Oh, and, and I don't really, and I find that if I don't have nice things to say about something, I find it hard to sell. Uh huh. But having said that, yeah. if you needed one, uh, it's a little late this year because all my bare rooted yes. trees have come in. But I'm happy to order them for people if they give me an order prior, and I can order them from the bare rooted tree growers. Now I can normally get a mid to bright pink and a pure white. Yeah, it's just the scent that's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The perfume's no, lovely in Prunus yeah. Mumay, but I just don't like the tree. And so, if yeah. I can't be enthusiastic, I'm not going to sell it. Oh no. So no, no. it's the same with flowering almonds. I mean, I love almond blossom, but I don't mm. like almond trees. I think they're really mm. rather stiff and ungainly trees. Mm. Oh, look! Thanks so much, and I'm so glad you had another successful tour. Oh yes, Wonderful. it all it all went swimmingly well, and I I'm hoping all of my tour participants came home buzzing with excitement. No, oh, I bet they did. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Mim. Cheers. Bye. Okay, now the text message, guys. Uh, Ian from Sunbury uh, last year had leaf curl on his plum trees. Is now a good time to spray them with copper spray, or do I wait until bud burst? You've got to wait till the bud show colour is the trick. Mm-hmm. And then you probably have to spray at least twice, uh, a week or so apart, because we get such unclement weather that the, uh, the copper will get washed off. Mm. Um, so as soon as they're showing a little bit of colour in the buds, if you've got a what looks like a few reasonably clement days coming up ahead of you, rush out and spray them. Yep. A couple of other things to deal with leaf curl too, and depending on the size of the tree, but when you do see curly leaves appearing Mm. on the tree, pick them off and put them in the bin straight away and just keep doing that if you can if you can reach yeah, them. Yeah, I couldn't be bothered with my peach tree because it's too big. Yeah, Uh, well I had a miniature peach tree and I did that to it and and it was um, useful in in decreasing the severity of yeah. of it because I let it get bad. Mm. But also another fungicide that's probably a little bit kinder to your soil is uh, eco a product called eco-fungicide, and the active ingredient in it is potassium bicarbonate, which is similar to sodium bicarbonate, where it just changes. Apparently this is the, wor- the way that it works is that it changes the pH on the surface of the leaf. So it's just a contact oh, yeah. um, fungicide, but you – you just need to apply it every fortnight and for the for the growing season um, to try to, to deal with it or to try to get rid of it. So yeah. that would be my other recommendation instead of a copper spray. Now, there is an old, I daren't say wives' tale, but an old person's tale um, that marshmallow weed controls curly leaf. Like Mel- Melva? Yes. Yeah. Oh. You know the marshmallow weed that grows on, yeah. uh, on generally waste ground around? If you pull it up and hang it from the tree... Um, at about the same time as you would spray, 
it's supposed to help with curly leaf. Now, really, uh, I don't know whether it works or not. Uh, it's well, not one, one of, of our listeners I'm, might know. Yeah, Let us, yeah, yeah well, in. marshmallow weed, the Melva, whatever it is, uh, uh, and you just hoik them out of the ground. And if you get them up with their roots, of course, they're going to have branches, so you can hang them upside down over the branches of your tree. So just in the tree. Yeah, just hang it in the tree. Is yeah. what I was told. Okay. Now I keep meaning to try it, yeah. but every time the peach tree is about ready to do that, I can't find any marshmallow wood around <laughs> near where I need to, that to have it. Um, and it's not as common up at Macedon as it is in some of the lower mm, areas where it's yeah. a bit warmer. Um, but it's supposed to help control. None of these things will cure mm. things. Because you, you almost don't want to cure things, though. You no. just want them so yeah, manage you can them. use your plant for what you've grown it for yeah. and it's not dying or yeah. being really sick. Yeah, exactly. And that's where, like, using heavy fungicides... You might be killing the good fungus, the fungus that, that's causing the issue, but you're also killing all the good fungus. Yeah, because really in fact, fungicides aren't as specific as a no, lot of no. other um, sprays that we use. Yeah. Um, so yes, they kill the goodies and the baddies as and, well. And even the eco fungicide would kill the goodies there, but it's a little bit safer for us to use, and it's not. Mm. Yeah, and it's won't sort of. Well, as you say, a around. contact one. By the time it reaches the ground, which is where you want to protect most of the fungi, mm. it's probably. Not having the same effect in the soil because yeah. it's got a lot more pH to change. Where on the surface of the buds, you know, it's it's a, quite a thin film that it, absolutely uh, surface area that it has to change yeah. the conditions so the fungi can't produce them uh, or grow. Yeah. Um, but as soon as it hits the soil, yeah. it's it's just going to be diluted to a point where it's not going to yeah, cause that any much harm. Issues, Good point. Yeah. yeah. So there I, you go. I did manage to control peach leaf curl on my on my peach tree a couple of years ago and started getting crops again that weren't where the fruit weren't rotting. So, mm. and that was from using eco fungicide mm. fortnightly. Um, but if you do want to do copper spray, um, put a tarp around the bottom of the tree while you're mm. spraying just to stop that drift getting down into the soil and, mm. and mucking up all the soil microbes yeah. too. Yep. All right. Okay, Greg, you've got a pile of plants. Yeah, we, and we haven't, haven't got, around to. got I'll, to I'll it. have a quick whip through yeah, the ones that I took a photo through. of. So yeah. I've bought in uh, Clematis nepalensis, which is one of my favourite clematises. It just grows wild. I think this is actually a seedling from Stephen's one at the yeah. nursery. Um, Where's it, that from? Uh, Nepal. Nepal. Nepalensis. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you so just that, step right into that, what? Chloe. <laughs> it has uh, pale green flowers with bright sort of purple stamens. The honey uh, eaters adore it. They do uh, love it. They protect of it, in fact. Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry, I've got a yeah, wattle bird that protects it. Yeah. Uh, and if any other bird comes near it, the wattle bird comes down and shushes them away. Yeah, with, I can with, imagine. With no uncertain terms. Uh, so it's a, a winter-growing, winter-flowering uh, clematis, yeah. dormant in summer. And it actually is completely dormant in summer. It yep. drops its leaves and people don't listen when you sell it and they often come back in the summer and say, oh, that it's thing I dead. bought is dead. And it's it's another clematis that gets a huge crop of seeds, um, which, which look amazing. Which look gorgeous. And it's a good companion plant for a summer-growing vine of, mm. or climber of some sort mm. as well. Looks good through a deciduous tree too, oh, so it disappears wood. into the tree yeah. in the summer. That, that's what I was thinking of putting up my Ace Nagundo, actually. Oh, what a good idea. <laughs> um, another tr- uh, tree that's flowering at the moment, it's started growing really well in the yes. last few years, even though they've been in the ground for nearly 20, they're the Gary <laughs> Ellipticus. Mm. Um, that's probably a hybrid one, is it? Is there a uh, selection. Yeah, it's, uh, it's got James Roof. big James flowers Roof, and right. big leaves on yeah. it, what yeah. you brought in. Yeah. Uh, so 
the foliage is just an evergreen, smallish it's growing tree. It's actually not overly attractive foliage. No. It's a bit dull and boring. It is dull, but when it flowers, oh yeah, oh Gary my is amazing. Gosh, it's so you just got don't a see it Silvery anymore. green tassels on the bush. They, they don't look silvery green here, but on the bush they have yeah. a sort of a silvery sort of yeah. uh, sheen to them. Um, the tassels on these, and these aren't big trees, but they're what maybe. 15, 20 centimetres yeah. long. Yep. Yeah. Uh, in quite big clusters. And then once the bush, the shrub fills out, it's covered in these things yeah. for Just quite a long it. time, too, at a year when, at a time of the year when there's not always a lot around. And heaps of pollen in them, too. I yeah. love yes. shaking yes. Oh, the yes. You get this great cloud of yeah. pollen that comes um, out. The other one was what used to be Dichroa versicolor, but it's now Hydrangea versicolor. So it's basically a Heidi without the big florets. Mm. It's just the fertile flowers in the, in the centre. Um, in acidic soils, they're a beautiful, deep electric blue. They're almost evergreen or yeah, pretty much evergreen. close to evergreen. Um, and the other thing is is often when you need to prune these things, you don't know when because they've always got flowers on them. They just, if in a good spot where oh, they love good it. problem to have. This is a tiny flower. So the one I've got here, you know, is about the size of, it's a, if it laid flat, the size of my palm of my hand. Uh, I did some cuttings last year that are already six feet tall plants <laughs> with leaves... 20 to 30 centimetres long, and one of them's got a flower that's uh, 40 centimetres across the base, and I think by the time it fully opens will be 50 centimetres tall or so. Whoa. Um, and that's, that's outrageous. A, that's a one-year-old plant <laughs> from, uh, yeah. from cutting. Can you just spell the name of that? Uh, so it's Hydrangea Versicolor, V-E-R-S-I-C-O-L-O-R. Yeah. What's its old name? Because I reckon Dichroa. nursery labels probably Oh, they'll still, still be have... selling it as Dichroa, which yeah, is yep. D-I-C-H-R-O-A, yep. Dichroa. So you'll still see it sold as that around most of the traps. Yeah. And there was one more thing I bought in. Oh, and Stephen's bought one of these ah, in too. Yes. Ta-da! Oh, Hammer Malice. <laughs> now, Stephen, Stephen should talk about these because he knows more about them than I do. I just... Love them. Yeah, yeah. The witch hazels, <laughs> these are the Chinese witch hazels, which aren't used for witch hazel oil. Mm. So the oil comes from the North American one, Hamamelis virginianus. These are Hamamelis intermedia forms. This one is one called pallida, which means pale, and it's a nice, soft, sulfury yellow. And Greg's brought along one of the orange ones, which I... I think it's Yelena, is it? Uh, Yelena? Uh, Yelena. Yep. Yelena, which is an orange Hamamelis Yelena. Yeah, and this one's Hamamelis pallida. Uh, there's also darker burgundy ones called Diana and Ruby Glow. And the interesting thing about the witch hazels is that whatever their flower colour is, almost invariably their autumn foliage colour's the same. So if it's a yellow-flowered one, oh, the autumn colour will be yellow. Cool. If it's orange like that one, it'll have orangey-red autumn yeah. foliage. So I, and if it's a burgundy, it'll be more burgundy-coloured. So I bought the autumn colour foliage of this in a few months back when I was in. Yeah. Mm. And the other interesting thing, Hamamelis are one of my favourite trees. They've mm. pretty much got everything. The foliage is stunning mm. all year round while it's on the tree. Beautiful autumn colour, nice big chunky leaves on them. Yeah. Really beautiful habit tree. Yeah, nice sort of vase Small vase-shaped tree. Um, but this one, as you say, the predominant colours in the orange tinges, mm. but uh, I bought a selection of leaves that I'd plucked off my tree and they varied from when they're just starting to turn from the green and then some leaves have oh. got orange and red and almost black through them and dark oh. sort of burgundy green uh, right up to 
bright orange, like just iridescent yeah. orange. I remember when you did that because you took a photo of the spectrum of yes. colour, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was beautiful. Yeah. They are great trees. Now, yeah. they don't like 45 degrees in a howling northwesterly. Okay. No. Uh, they're not particularly perturbed whether it's an acid or an alkaline soil, but they do like a humus-rich soil and they like a good mulch. And I guess the only other thing I would say that's really important is to make sure that uh, they're, uh, the understocks don't grow because yes. they rarely shoot from the – oh, they quite commonly shoot from the understock and the foliage is fairly similar. So you've got to keep an eye on anything that comes up from ground level because it'll be Hamamellus virginiana, which is good for oil but not good for flowers. And are they – so they're grafted? Yeah, they're nearly okay. always grafted. All right. We better stop there yes, at that at that yeah, moment. Because the time is because the up. time has run out again. Thank you both so much for yes. a lovely morning. Uh, Stephen Ryan and Greg Balderson have been with me this morning, and thank you to Burn and Tom uh, producing this morning, and to Liz who does our socials. We'll be back again next Sunday morning. Have a lovely day, everyone. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.